yesterday. I, I try to make it a point to do that. Yesterday, uh, Sunday, was the day that you <coughs> begin to count Pentecost from, the wave sheaf day, in which the sheaf was waved on the Sunday following the Sabbath. Now we count nine Sabbaths, and then the 50th day, the following Sunday, is Pentecost. So... That is something we need to be aware of and reminded of and then make the count properly uh, as the weeks go by. It's something I think that God intends us to count down week by week because Pentecost is such an important time and uh, we need to be aware of it and be preparing for it in some ways in the same way that we prepare for Passover. And Passover, we're examining ourselves Pentecost uh, was not an examination in that sense. It was more of a time when God showed His mighty hand and what He intended to do and, uh, and so on. And it was a feast of the first fruits in that sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a step closer to the plan of God being fulfilled from Passover and Unleavened. Uh, and I think we'll probably see in this series of sermons I'm doing now that uh, we need God's help. We need God's Spirit because there's very little that we can do on our own. We need help from God because overcoming and growing and being what we ought to be uh, on our own is <laughs> it's a lesson in futility. Uh, in, the, in terms of announcement, only I think about tomorrow, we're planning on meeting up at Springdale uh, and I think everyone here is familiar with how to get uh, up there. You take Lion Boulevard to the left, uh, going up through Springdale, like you're going to Tanner Theater. We've met there in the library uh, up that road, and the, the park we'll meet in tomorrow is just above the library on the way up to Tanner. So we've all been there. Uh, I don't think there will be many people around that aren't normally on the weekdays up there. A few people might go in to have lunch or something, but we plan on being up there early uh, to take over the cupola and, uh, and the tables and so on and take some chairs up in case we need them and set them up. So we should have control of that, and if anybody sees a big gathering is going to be there, they'll want to go somewhere else anyway. So I don't, I don't think we'll have a problem. If so, I've got a couple of alternative places in mind uh, we can just move our chairs and be ready to go regardless. But it would be nice to be outside in the sunshine and enjoy a, a relaxed and informal time there and then be able to enjoy Zion before or after the service. Uh, I, I do like to get up there as a reminder and as an inspiration to us of what that place is and what God is going to do there. So that's for tomorrow at 1 o'clock. And again, for you on the uh, phone line, uh, we'll not be able to broadcast from up there, so it will be silent tomorrow, but then we'll pick up uh, on Wednesday here, the same as we have through the week. All right, let's get back to where I left off yesterday. Uh, I want to go to 1 Corinthians because this thing of examining ourselves, of recognizing our sin, and then what God expects us to do about it. 
We saw some parallels yesterday between what God did with Israel, bringing them out of captivity, and the captivity that we are already in, a soft captivity today, which is going to become a hard captivity very soon of this nation, and uh, many events that are going to be coinciding here shortly. But they were to get out hastily, as I made a point, They didn't let their bread rise because uh, of time. So time was of the essence. And they were getting out of what was symbolically, or to become symbolically at least, sin. That is the captivity of the system of Satan and this world. And we have been called to come out from the world, to be separate from its system, Uh, not even to be involved in its politics and all that kind of thing, Uh, its jury duty, uh, its governance of itself, because it is a corrupt system. It isn't God's system. And God makes it very clear that we are to be ambassadors for Christ, strangers and pilgrims here on the earth, that we are not to be part and parcel with this society. And then we have seen indications in recent years, after God scattered the church, that he intends a physical removal as well from the clutches of Babylon. And even some of the prepper sites on the internet are saying, the last place you want to be in is a city. I mean, they see the dangers that are there apart from Scripture and the instruction that we have seen, that that's not the place to be. It's the most dangerous place that there is to be in a city and the grasp of the powers that will overcome the citizenry of this country, both from within and from without. You notice the church had trouble from without and it had trouble from within. And since all these prophecies apply first to the church, then to the nation, We know from that that there will be uh, insurrection, that there will be treason from within, as well as pressures and attacks from without. That became very, very obvious in Worldwide Church of God, and we had false leadership that came in and took over as well. So our nation is going to be taken over pretty much in the same fashion. Betrayal from within and then takeover from without. But the point is, God wants us to remove ourselves from sin. Sin is what will kill us. Sin is the transgression of the law, and the wages of that is sin. So we want to get as far from sin as we can. And Satan and his society and culture around us is centered in, founded on sin. So the less we have to do with that which is around us, the better off we're going to be, and it will clear the path for us to get closer to God. Well, that is a goal and a purpose we're working on. But where I want to go today is to encapsulate somewhat what God expects of us. That He does not expect us to be here going through the motions of putting physical leavening out of our homes and letting it go at that, and then symbolically saying we need to put sin out of our lives, but then doing nothing about it. He expects action. 
If we examine ourselves and we find ourselves wanting, if we find that we have indeed a problem or five, uh, then God expects us to do something about that. He doesn't expect it to continue. And these days, we are supposed to cram in as much overcoming and growing as rapidly as we possibly can and not let it get away from us. Here in 1 Corinthians, we'll see that. Corinth was a fairly new church at the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And as we go through a little bit, or pick up a few things in the first few chapters here, we'll see that there were difficulties there that needed dealt with, and that he felt it very important that, that they be dealt with. So he wrote this letter. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Emmanuel, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions or schisms or people thinking and doing different things among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So the goal that... Paul states here is that everybody be in agreement, that they all do the same things in the same way with the same understanding. Now, in the church today, throughout all the splinters of the church, that is far from true. There are so many different beliefs, so many different focuses and approaches, it's beyond comprehension. So it is a church divided. Now, God does not like that. But there were problems that existed is the reason he scattered it in the first place. And we have a place here where, as Isaiah tells us, that there's no man that everyone will look to to lead, and therefore they lean to their own understanding. And that has always been a bad thing uh, in Israel when that has occurred. So bad, in one case, there was no man at all that could lead, so they wound up with Deborah leading, and that's not a godly solution, but it's what they wound up with because there was no manhood available. But he makes it very clear here that those divisions should not exist, that we should all think the same. We should have the same doctrine and teaching. Now, that takes time. And as you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you will see that he dealt with quite a few different issues where these believed one thing, those believed something else, and they were not doing things according to the way Christ did them or the way other parts of the Bible, the Old Testament, said they were to be done. And he even made uh, some doctrinal changes, 1 Corinthians 7, about marriage and so on, uh, in dealing with the problems at Corinth, things that God included in the Scripture that are doctrine and sound and good and right teaching today. But never forget, our goal is to come to true mutual understanding of all things. There is only one truth. You may think you have it, I may think I have it, it's God's truth. 
And we have to search the Scriptures diligently to be sure that what we have is God's truth, not our own. And some issues are very knotty and very difficult to discern. Most come within the simplicity of Christ. And there are not many issues that are so technical that they cannot be discerned through Scripture, not twisting it the way we want, but simply taking it for what it says. Anyway, never forget, when there are diversities of opinion, that that is not a good thing. It's something that needs to be rectified. It needs to be fixed in whatever way can it can be done. Uh, it said that it had been passed on to him that there were contentions among them at the end of verse 11. And he said in 13, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? Uh, no. And then a little later on, he talks about some being of Paul and some of Apollos, and they picked out their favorite preacher. Uh, and he said, That's not right either. Christ is our Master. He is the one we look to. And... Paul even himself said, follow me as I follow Christ. I've heard it said in the church, well, you're not supposed to follow a man. That's wrong. You are supposed to follow a man. God has appointed men to be followed. He has appointed offices within the church that should be followed. But there is always that caveat in there that you follow them as they follow Christ. So, yeah, it might be said, you shouldn't follow a man, you should follow Christ. True. But Christ has appointed men and put them in positions to teach, to preach, to instruct, to guide, and to direct. And as they follow Scripture, you're supposed to follow them. Paul made that very, very clear. Follow me as I follow Christ. As Herbert Armstrong followed Christ, I was not an Armstrongite. I was a follower of man who was following Christ. And when he didn't follow Christ, then I was to back off. But we are to be Godites and Christites, not Manites. But we are to recognize what God has done and how he has always worked through men and we had to be careful when Worldwide broke up because Herbert Armstrong had been leading us essentially in a correct direction. And then the Tkachas led us in a totally wrong direction and left Christ. So we had to make some very important decisions, and it was very confusing, wasn't it? Because we'd been taught we should follow church government. Well, that's right, insofar as it follows the Bible. But when the Tkachas departed greatly from the Bible, you couldn't use the excuse, well, we're just supposed to follow the government. No, you had to follow the Scripture. And you began to look around for men who would still follow Scripture. And there were some, and there still are, however imperfectly any of us are. All right, let's, let's move on down a little bit. He wanted them to understand that God does not work through people simply because they're smart or well-educated. 
these Corinthians, as we'll find later on, were puffed up with their own ego, their own ideas, their own mentalities, and that is not what God uses. So he said he uses the weak and the base of the world toward the end of chapter 1 and chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence, verse 29. And in verse 31, he that glories, let him glory in the eternal. So we don't puff ourselves up. We don't get vain and egocentric about what we, how smart we are or whatever. We cannot allow ourselves, brethren, to do that. But it's a human tendency. We, we like our own brains, don't we? Uh, I mean, yeah, we should in a way. Uh, that's the brain God gave us, and we should use it to the best ability that we can. But we need to be very, very careful that we don't overuse or misuse it and so that we are humble and meek and able to be instructed. And he was trying to instruct them here, but he had some attitudes to deal with. Uh, he said in verse 4, my speech in my, of chapter 2, my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So he came, not as a reed shaken in the wind, but with power and with strength to show uh, the power of God through God's Spirit that their faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Then he reiterates in verses 9 through 11 what we're here for. So we're here to be resurrected members of the God family. So he said, in all of your dissension, and all of your difficulties, and all of your troubles, keep in mind what you're here for. That God has called you out of this world to be different and to be given a reward at the time Christ returns and passes out those rewards. So don't let your, your focus get away from these important things. They're what we're really here for. And then he says in verse 14, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And we have seen that in people that just can't get spiritual understanding or principles. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who has known the mind of the eternal, that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So once we have the Spirit of God, and we have his word, then that word begins to react with our minds, and we begin to have the mind of Christ. And that's what he said in another place. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. So we're, come to, we're to come to think and to react just like Christ did and does. To be just like him. Never forget that is your goal as a human being, is to be just like Christ. A perfect clone of him. And it takes <laughs> some work and some refining and some polishing for all of us. And then he tells them in chapter 3, verse 3, You are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as men? 
So he starts telling them here that some of the problems that they were suffering, which we'll get to specifically in a bit, are because of carnality, because of human, natural, normal thinking. Not godly thinking. And he lays the problems they were having, envying, strife, divisions, as coming from carnality. He gives the source here. Those issues do not come from godly thinking. They don't come from the Spirit of God. They come from carnal reactions of people both to God and to each other is where they come from. For while one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who is Paul, who is Apollos, but, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the eternal gave to every man? And then he showed how different functions were performed by each of them. But it was God who gave the increase, it wasn't man. And points out in verse 9 that we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry and are God's building. So God is building something in you and in me as a temple of God, a small one, as individuals. And it is to have godly ingredients, godly actions, and godly functions. Something that God builds will not have envying and strife and division. So if we find ourselves grappling with those things, we need to examine our thinking and see why that is there. And we will find that it is carnality. It is not the Spirit of God that produces those results. So we all have to examine ourselves on that. And he says the only foundation we can have in 3.11 is that which is laid in Christ. And we have to build with quality ingredients on that. Gold, silver, precious, stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Every man's work will be made manifest. It will either be the precious things that endure, or it will be those things that can be torn down, burned, or blown away so very easily. So build with quality ingredients. That would be the emotional responses, the... Uh, beliefs, the truths of Christ. You can't build on any other foundation. And whatever is put on that foundation has to be godly as well. So it leaves a lot of room for us to be sure that we are directing our minds and emotions in correct directions and not getting sidetracked. It says in verse 16, Know you not that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if you defile that, it will be destroyed. It should be holy. And if it's not holy, it'll be destroyed. Verse 17. So he's admonishing them to be sure they're doing things correctly and not producing an inferior product. Then down into chapter 4, there he encourages them not to judge anything before the time. Verse 5, they were judging Paul. They were judging some of them Apollos. They were condemning. They were uh, being negative toward. And he made it very clear here. I won't go into all of it. You can read it yourself. But he made it very clear. His judgment wasn't until Christ made the judgment on him. And that their judgment of him 
meant nothing. And his judgment in that sense of them in an eternal way meant nothing. Now, we do have to judge <coughs> action sometime and judge beliefs in terms of getting those correct. But we should not condemn one another. That is something that God reserves for himself. In verse 16, he says, Wherefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. And that's why I sent Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful, and so on, and will bring remembrance of what they need to them. Verse 20, For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? So, he's about to make a decision here in chapter 5. And he was planning on coming to see them. And he's giving them a choice. He says, you need to fix some issues so that I can come to you in love and kindness and gentleness. Or if you don't, I will come and bring a rod. And he would be very strong and very decisive with that rod. He had the option, but the option depended on them, on their reaction to what he wrote. If you go to chapter 16, it talks about uh, him either headed toward Ephesus or already being in Ephesus when he wrote this. And he said he was going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then he planned to come see them. So I believe that this book was written shortly before uh, Passover and was sent by mail to Corinth uh, enough ahead of time that the feast of Passover had not yet started. Uh, and that is internally seen in chapter 5, that this letter arrived probably just prior to Passover, and he had an indication here of in what manner they should keep the feast. So now we're coming down to uh, an issue that needed to be resolved, and there are a lot of lessons in it for us to learn. But I wanted to go back into verse chapters 1 through 4 to show the background that Paul was laying about uh, the problems they were having and the, the causes of those problems and what the solution to the problems would be. So he said, the kingdom of God isn't just in word, but it has power associated with it. And through Christ's appointment of Paul and through his ordination, God had given him that power to use the rod if he needed to use it. So here then is a specific problem in chapter 5. It was a serious problem. It is reported commonly... Everybody knows, in other words, this isn't a secret, it isn't a, a sin or something that somebody has privately, but this is something that the whole church knows about. Uh, commonly reported, there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. I mean, there's fornication, there's adultery, but this is something that is an additional sin on top of those sins, and that it was a total perversion. Now, whether it was his own mother, or whether it was a stepmother, as has been speculated, is 
unclear and really doesn't matter because for a man to take his own mother would be abominable and for him to take his uh, father's wife, his stepmother, would be the same thing. And there are laws in the Old Testament against that kind of thing which is incest on top of let's say a, a normal, if, you, if it's normal, a normal sin that had incest on top of it. So, he said, not even the Gentiles get into that. They may fornicate, they may adulterate, but they don't get into this kind of perversion in the same way that it was happening there. And they were a church in a Gentile city that uh, was quite corrupt morally. So he says, you're even worse than the ones around you, is essentially what he's saying. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So he's establishing right away that a sin that is commonly known, as this one was, was not being dealt with, was not being handled, but... They somehow perversely thought it was okay and permitted it and did nothing about it. So he said, the person who has done this should be removed from among you. This is an egregious, a terrible sin. Worse than the average sin. Of course, any sin, the penalty is death. But there are some sins which have more effect upon a human being and their emotions and their psyche than others and have more effect on those around than others. And this was one of those that was communicable. Immorality is a communicable disease. When it is allowed, then more and more people seem to imbibe of it. And this was out in the open where it could easily be picked up and uh, communicated to others. For I truly, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. Paul was the one making the decision here as to what should be done about this sin and about this man in the church who was sinning. He said, I don't have to be there I've gotten the facts. I know that you commonly accept this. You're no, you've done nothing about it. So he said, I'm going to do something about it. And he had the power and the authority, as he said in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4, to do so. He said he had determined already, is a better translation of the Greek here as opposed to judge, but it was a judgment, a discernment, uh, a perception an understanding of what was going on, and then he was going to render uh, a verdict and a procedure to solve this problem in the church. Remember, he had already said, we need to be not divided. We need to be uh, unified and close. And this was something that was causing a certain amount of division and was certainly uh, able to be spread among others. I mean, they already had a problem of morality in Corinth, and this it being in the church wasn't going to help it a bit. 
They were trying to come out of that society, not bring it into God's church. You can't put that on the foundation of Christ, can you? His is the foundation, and you have to build with quality ingredients, and this wasn't one. So he'd laid the groundwork for what he's saying here well ahead of time in the first four chapters. And it was coming together uh, toward this decision that he rendered. Verse 4. In the name of our Lord Emmanuel, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Emmanuel the Christ, though he cites God here, he cites the leader, the head of the church, and he says this is what has to be done in this case. To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Christ. Now, when we are part of the church, we are part of a living organism, a spiritual organism. And to be cut off from that is a form of spiritual death. That's what he's explaining here. If you're not connected to the body, what happens? You wither and die. And he said, this sin has cut this man off from God. Remember Isaiah 59? It says, our sins have cut us off from God. Being cut off from God does what to you? We read it the other night. You either have to be connected to the vine, which is Christ. If the branch is disconnected, it withers and dies and produces no fruit. So if you have someone within the church who, through sin, egregious, uh, constant, or repeated sin, is cutting themselves off from God, then they cannot be a part of a living, viable body. If you have gangrene in your hand, they will cut it off because it will destroy the whole body. So it has to go. Now you might save the body, but the hand withers and dies. It's already in the process of dying before you take it off, or you wouldn't take it off, right? So he says, here was a man who was in the process of dying spiritually because of a repeated concurrent sin And it was uh, communicable, and there are many rules in the Old Testament about something that is communicable. If it is something that would spread, what did God say had to be done? That person had to be quarantined until they got well. They had to stay away from those who were healthy, lest they also get sick. So that was a physical quarantine of physical diseases. But here we're seeing it raised to another level. Here is a spiritual problem with spiritual communicability involved. So he said this person has to be quarantined, cut out of and removed from the body, lest it pollute the whole body and the whole body die. Now, it seems drastic, but it was a continuing sin 
that had implications for others, and we'll see that as we go on. So he, he actually is saying here, in so many words, that man is to be put in Satan's hands for the destruction of the flesh. When someone is disfellowshipped, excommunicated, as other scriptures and this one show, they are removed from the body and turned back over to Satan where they were before they became part of the body of Christ. As part of the world. As part of the system. People, since Herbert Armstrong died, have tried to bypass this because there are so many groups you can go to and if you are disfellowshipped from one, you just simply go and fellowship with another until you find one that agrees with your thinking or that you like or whatever. And in some respects, it has removed the power, it has removed the control that God put in the early New Testament church simply because people can shop for what they want. Now, we even saw that in Worldwide at times. Uh, people would go from congregation to congregation shopping for a preacher who would let them do what they wanted to do. And eventually, they prob- sometimes they found one. Didn't make it right, but they did it. But here, he says, this man will be cut off from the body of Christ and turned over to Satan. Now, was Paul's purpose then to cause this person to lose eternal life? No, not at all. And he says that in the next breath, that the Spirit may be saved at the time of the resurrection. In other words, if this person is cut off, there is a chance that they will repent. There is a chance they will consider their thinking and their conduct. They will change and they can be allowed to come back. And if allowed to come back, they still have opportunity at salvation and eternal life. So he was not cutting this person off to destroy him, but he was putting him back in the world where he would be destroyed unless and until he repented and changed. Now, sometimes people get bitter and angry and resentful, and they simply won't change because of their ego, their inferiority feelings, their whatever, their background, their past, And they may lose out on eternal life. Now, in this particular case, it had a happy ending in that this person truly did repent. And you can read the story in 2 Corinthians 6, I think it is, where the attitude of the people was such that once they had excised the man in their own minds, when Paul had said, put him out, get rid of him, don't have anything to do with him, Turning back over to Satan. Then they became polarized thinking that way. So then when the man did repent and did change his attitude, Paul allowed him to come back into the body, and then the people didn't want to accept their hand back. It was all 
well now spiritually and could be reattached to the body. But eh, we don't want you now. So their reaction to this man and his sin in the first place had been carnal. And then when he was brought back, the reaction was again carnal. So he had to had to correct them there and said, this man has repented. Now bring him back in and love him and let him be part of the body again. So what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 5 is protecting the body itself as well as cutting the man off for his own good. Two good things should come out of this. His problem should not be uh, multiplied in the church, and he should face the stark reality that he was cut off from the body, and if he wanted to be part of the kingdom of God, he needed to get his conduct in line with Scripture and in God's way, line with God's way of thinking. If he really wanted to be in the kingdom of God and to be part of the church of God, he had some work to do, right? He had to get over his attitudes and his sin, and then he could be allowed back. That's the way the quarantine worked in the Old Testament. You were separated for the good of everybody else until you got well. Then you were brought back, and you could be part of the body of Israel again. Well, that's the way it's supposed to work if everyone does what they are supposed to do. Verse 6. Now he deals with he deals with the decision here. This man has to go. He cannot stay in the congregation with his continuing sin and incest or whatever it was that was going on. Decision made, rendered, do it. Now they themselves had to follow up on this and cease contact with that person. Now, what good does it do if you have tuberculosis or did in in the Old Testament, or leprosy, which they had commonly. You were a leper, so you were quarantined. You were sent outside the camp alone because you had a communicable disease. Now, how much good would that do if your friends and relatives then decided to go outside the camp and be with you anyway? Then they would get leprosy and bring it back in, and it was communicable, so they too would have to be quarantined. And that's why, in an extreme case, Paul said, mark that person and have no one is to have anything to do with them until they repent. Just as a leper, put them out and don't go see them, lest it spread. I mean, it serves no purpose to put them out of camp if you take the camp to them. A bad apple spoils the whole barrel, whether you remove the apple and the barrel follows, or whether you leave the apple in the barrel. So they had a responsibility as individuals then to back up the decision that Paul had rendered here. Then he deals with their attitude in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. They were kind of halfway proud of this sin that was going on. 
You know, people can get that way. You look at, uh, let's say, a barroom scene somewhere in America today. It is inhabited, by and large, by drunks and loose morality. Those are the basic two things you find in the middle of the cigarette smoke in that environment. And those people think nothing of it. You know? Let's all get sloppy drunk. Uh, let's fall off the stools together. Let's get up and fight if we want to. But this is an acceptable situation to us. And we come here every night, or at least on the weekend, to do our thing. And then they joke among themselves about who's going home with whom that night. And nothing is thought of it, right? They're puffed up in their own conceit and their own sin and their own way of life that has been acceptable to them. Now, these Corinthians had been in that kind of environment. The whole city was a big bar, if you will. And they had come out of this, but those lax attitudes toward that type of conduct is something that had been part of their culture and society. And Paul says, no, this can't be in the church. Cut that out. And we need to examine attitudes here about people who would allow that kind of condition and essentially think nothing of it, be halfway kind of proud of it. Did you ever see a drunk on a bar stool? Pretty proud. Ready to fight anybody that crosses him in any way. A lot of redneck ego there. So he says, your acceptance of this, or your glorying in it, or your wink, wink, elbow, nudge, you know what he's doing? Same thing we were doing before we got baptized. Going right back to the way he used to be. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, if you allow this sin to continue in the church, it will spread throughout the church. That's what leavening does. Put a little in the corner of the bread, pretty soon you have a nice big puffy loaf because it spreads throughout the bread. It was. This is a different... A different analogy, but the same thing, whether it be uh, communicable disease or leavening. But the Passover was coming up, and this is the uh, method he chose, uh, chose, the analogy he chose, to explain the problem. You cannot allow this to spread. As I said, the bad apple in the barrel, or the leavening in the corner of the loaf, same thing. So he says in verse 7, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Get rid of this sin that has come into the church out of the society of Corinth, and don't let it continue. Purge it out, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So we have seven days of unleavened bread, which pictures getting rid of the puffed-up, carnal, egocentric, self-oriented attitudes that we tend to have. And become loving, 
and kind and gentle and true to God and man. So we have to get rid of the selfishness, essentially, and in the church today, Self is the first word in self-righteous, and that is, as I've said many times, the biggest, church, uh, biggest problem in the church today, and that's why God spewed it out. So he says, get rid of it. We need some flatbread here. We don't need something puffed up. Verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast... Not with old leaven, not with our old carnal, egocentric attitudes that we've had, and with the sins that we brought with us. Now, in most cases, we may have ceased from some of the sins being done in a physical way, but perhaps they still reside within our minds and emotions and are still nurtured and cultured there. So, he says, let's not do it with the selfishness, the sin, and wasn't this type of adultery basically selfishness? I want to do what I want to do. I want to think what I want to think, and I want to be what I want to be. And everybody else said, yea, verily, yea. If it feels good, do it, is the way we'd say it in our society today. If it seems right, it's okay. If you like it, it's good. Selfies is what it's all about. That's the, the root word is selfish for selfie. It's all about me. Everything's about me. This man was not thinking of the effect it might have on the rest of the body, was he? He wasn't thinking that, well, if I'm doing this, other people will probably do it too. And in his attitude, he'd have probably been, hey, that's okay, let's all do it. Like the world. So he says, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with our old way of thinking, not with our old way of acting, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice and wickedness is equated here with leavening during the days of unleavened bread. Because malice and wickedness spread through the whole body. And that was the whole point here, was stop wickedness, stop malice, or negative evil thinking one toward the other, evil motives being attributed, or however you want to put it. But he mentions particularly malice and wickedness. Wickedness is any sin, basically any negative emotion. And malice is that which is... Uh, a negative attitude that is laid on others. So that has to go away. So he's talking here about the attitudes of the people that were yet carnal. So don't keep it with malice and with wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity as opposed to hypocrisy. Sincerity means deeply believing and being committed to a course and following it and doing it meaningfully. Insincerity is saying, oh, I believe that, but then doing something different. 
So we need to be truly sincere and in truth. The truth of God did not include the kind of sin that was going on here. The truth of God does not include wickedness and malice. The foundation that we are building on, Christ, does not have those, I say qualities, those demerits, those wrong thoughts and actions. So we are called upon to get rid of those. Not that which puffs up the self. Then he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. In other words, here was a, a fornication. Fornication is uh, the word in the Greek for virtually any sexual sin or fraud in that sense. And he had written them prior to this about that issue because it was such an issue in the society around them as it is today. And he said, I'd written to you not to company with them. Don't be with them. Don't be their friends. Don't uh, go to dinner with them. We'll see that in a moment. Don't be around them. Stay away from them if they have that problem. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. I mean, the world around us is going to have these problems. And you'll run across them at work. You'll run across them in various things you might be doing out in uh, public. And he says you can't lift your skirts and run from them. You still have to do business and concourse to some degree with the world. So, rather than absolutely having to leave the earth, you have to sometimes put up with the garbage that's out in the world. But if it's somebody in the church, you're not to have company. You're not to be there. You're not to be involved with them. Let's see, let's see that. Verse 11, But now I have written to you, he said, I wrote to you before not to keep company with a habitual fornicator. He says, now I'm adding something to that. Now I have written to you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother, supposedly is a member of the church, okay? He calls himself a brother, and you may have been calling him a brother. But if that man who is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. No social interaction. No hospitality extended. To get away from them and stay away from them. Now that's scripture. The church, for many years, has somewhat ignored the scripture. There were times we disfellowshipped people in Worldwide. There were times they were marked and told you're not to even speak to them, period. They have a seriously communicable problem, whether it was a specific sin or an attitude which was also a sin. 
Not to be around them. Not to have anything to do with them. And this underlines and states the same thing in a little different words. Now let's examine that a little bit. Here's someone called a brother who is, let's say, a fornicator. I think he's talking here about habitual sin. He's talking about a way of life. If someone somewhere made a mistake out of weakness or temptation or whatever, and that was kept essentially private or was repented of, they could remain because they had repented and their attitude was right and they had ceased to sin. God is quick to forgive. So this isn't talking about a one-off sin. This is talking about somebody who was like this fornicator we're talking of in this chapter, who was living that way and was accepting of it, and therefore was communicable. Or covetous. Well, everybody has a certain amount of covetousness within them. It's the Tenth Commandment. But what if it's somebody who is so covetous of materiality and money and the various things that are here in this world that it dominates their conversation, it dominates their, uh, their life, where all they want to talk about is how they're going to get rich or the latest Ponzi scheme or, you know, whatever, however they might be going about it, it's so obvious that their mind is not on God and on His way and His people and His purposes and the job that He has for us, but their mind is simply, continually, on materiality. Look at the world around you. If you have habitual fornicators, go back to the bar scene I described, then that affects the people on the other stools as well. And they are influenced by it. If you have someone in this world, and all they think about is money, 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 and that's all they talk about, and you're around them, they've got this latest uh, pyramid thing that they're going to get rich on, you can easily get sucked into it. You can easily get your mind and focus off the spiritual and onto materiality. And Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount not to go there. He said, don't take anxious thought or don't try to pile up silver and gold and treasure, but to seek the true riches, the spirituality. So he's talking about someone here who might not just have a covetous thought, you know, but someone who thinks that way. And he's saying, don't be around that. Stay away from it. Let's go on through the list. Or an idolater. Someone who has... Materiality could be one of those idols. These things do kind of come together. Or they might have sports as an idol, and all they talk about is sports. They might have, what? Technology is their god. And they spend all their time on technology. Maybe video games. And that's what they do. Those things become idolatry because we are here to serve God and love Him with our heart, mind, body, and soul and put Him ahead of everything. But if our time is consumed with things that take us away from God or don't allow us the time we need with God to overcome and grow so we can be in the kingdom of God, 
then those things are idols. Basically self-indulgence. Putting myself ahead of God. If I like to do this, or I like to do that, or I like to do something else, even a any kind of a hobby can become an idol if that's what dominates your life and that's what you do. Crocheting, I guess, could be an idol. If you want to crochet 18 hours a day and you don't have time to pray and study and take care of your family and those around you, anything, whether it be good or bad, can be an idol. And it's bad if it takes you away from God. So someone who obviously has things that he's excited about, and that's all he's focused on, he says, don't be around that person. Don't eat with them. Don't have anything to do with them, because they will suck you into that vortex, and you'll go down with it, flushed out of the kingdom of God. Or a railer, somebody that's always talking negative, Gossiping, angry, bitter, resentful, doesn't like so-and-so, and wants you and everybody else to know about it. Someone who is railing against or putting down or is in the kind of negative attitude. See, that is also very, very contagious. If you notice that when gossip or slander starts, others pick it up. Just like that. Well, all so-and-so did such-and-such to me five years ago. Well, he did such-and-such to me three years ago. And everybody chimes in. Paul is setting truth, teaching, and doctrine in the church. And he said, if there's someone who is bitter, resentful, hateful, angry, and always speak nearly always, or habitually speaking evil, you were taught to extend hospitality, you're not to have them in your home, and you're not to eat with them. You're to stay away from them. Because it is communicable. And it will spread like leprosy. Now that's a command from God written in His Word. How often in the church do you see that followed? This is one of the more common ones that is within the church. A lot more common than incest. Maybe that's why he made a list here of like things that are also communicable, see? Or a drunkard. Anybody that habitually drinks too much, we're to have nothing to do with. We're not to be around them. We're not to go drinking or partying with them. We're not to eat with them. Now, occasionally, somebody might let things get out of control and drink too much. It's not talking about the occasional mistake. Those aren't good. They need to be changed. They need to be stopped. But this is talking about somebody who truly has a drinking problem. Uh, I've seen that in the church in times past. And there have been times when I even said, you should not drink any alcohol around that person. You need to make it a policy. I know you like to get together and play cards or do this or do that. 
But if that person continually and habitually gets drunk, I didn't even take it as far as Paul did. I says, make sure there's no alcohol and you don't drink around them. Because all it does is make their problem worse and harder to overcome. And they know they have the problem. It's habitual. There are alcoholics who don't like to use that term. Because they don't want to be labeled that way and they don't want to label themselves that way. But a habitual problem of overdrinking is, by definition, alcoholism. Now, as I said, occasional mistakes can be made. We can eat too much, we can drink too much. We are to be moderate and temperate in all things. Doesn't mean we ought to cut them out. But if someone has a serious problem with something, A, we shouldn't help them along with their problem by doing the same thing they're doing. That's partly what he's saying here. And he's taking it one step further. He's saying... Don't even not drink around them. Don't sit down and eat with them in your home or their home or a restaurant. And eating was, a sim- was symbolic of social intercourse, social connection. So he said, stop it. Cut it off. Or an extortioner. Someone who's going around trying to take people's money from them by this means, that means, con man maybe, or whatever, that habitually does that. Always trying to take it away. And it it implies, not through normal business uh, association, but by trying to take it uh, illegally or maliciously or crookedly. That's what extortion is. It's okay to make money. It's okay to earn from something you sell or whatever. Uh, We have to have profit or increase in order to live. But someone who is doing it using nefarious means is what extortion is, taking it essentially illegally. So he uses this category, or these categories, just picked out some that are fairly common, and says... Not only should they be put out of the church, you are not to eat with them. Now we are here during these seven days to put sin out of our lives. We are here to overcome. All the church eras were told, if you overcome, you will sit with me in my kingdom. God does not intend you and me, brethren, to go through these seven days without making some changes. Okay? Paul demanded that here. He absolutely demanded it. He says, you come out of sin and you come out now. Make haste. Put this person out. And if there are others there who have these other problems as a habitual thing, as a way of life, you're to do the same with them. Cut them off and not have any dealings with them. Again, it accomplished two things. It made them think seriously about whether they wanted to continue with the problem they had, whichever one of these or three of them they might have had. 
It would make them seriously think if they valued your friendship or your fellowship about changing their actions. If they didn't value your fellowship and your friendship, what's the difference anyway? Let them go. But if they did, and you cut them off, then that gave them impetus and motivation to retain their connection to the body and to their friends and neighbors and relatives in the church. It gave them help to overcome. Now, we as bleeding hearts might say, Oh, you can't cut them off. That'll just destroy them. It'll, oh, it'll just upset their psyches and it'll damage them. That's not the way God did it. He quarantined. And if you didn't get healthy, you didn't come back into the camp. And he quarantined spiritually. And if you didn't get healthy, you didn't come back into the camp. That's the way God sets the rules, Old and New Testament. And he said, don't let this go through the days of unleavened bread. He said, turn that person over to Satan right now and have nothing to do with them and keep the feast in sincerity and in truth. Now let's analyze ourselves in the light of this decision that Paul made and that God put in the Bible as a permanent record as part of church doctrine. You and I may not have one of these issues that is a habitual problem with us. We might infringe mentally, emotionally, even physically some of these at some time. That's not grounds for being put out. That's grounds for, oh my, how did I do that? God forgive me. And confess it to God, and if you offended others at it, apologize to them as well. But it's no reason for us to separate from one another because something happens once in a while, okay? This is talking about something that is continuing and is communicable and therefore has to be separated from, lest it spoil the whole barrel. But the point I've been driving toward and wanted to make overall today is this. Paul was very sudden with this. He said, do it now. And then I want you to put out the leavening of malice. I want you to put out the ego and the vanity and the selfishness that you're showing and keep the feast in sincerity and truth. So for God to inspire Paul to this decision and to this instruction and then to canonize it as part of Scripture means that this is God's attitude as well, not just Pauline theology. He made another decision in chapter 7 about marriage. And he says, I speak this, not the Lord, but I'm having to render a decision because of some place families with a member, uh, with a mate in the church and one without. It hadn't been dealt with. It had to be dealt with. So he made a doctrinal decision there, and God backed it up and put it in Scripture. 
So what Paul is saying here, clearly God is backing up. So what you and I need to take from this is that I need to have examined myself, and if I didn't, I'd better get on to brass tacks now because this is already the third day. And I had better have some movement toward getting sin out of my life and quit tolerating it anymore. Get serious. Don't come out of this day having eaten flatbread for seven days and be just like you were when it started. That's not God's intent. And he didn't allow that to happen in Corinth. He said, you fix it. You fix it now. If you've got some attitudes that are ungodly attitudes, get rid of them. Change them. Get serious about it. Don't let it go by. How many times can I say that? What will it take for me and for you to take this seriously? That's what God wants. And he prefaced all of this by talking about how we're the weak and the base. He talked about how you have to build on the foundation of Christ. He said you have to build with quality products so they don't get blown away. And he said, here's a product that isn't quality. And then he named a whole bunch more that go with this one so that you don't get heat just for incest, but for a gamut of other problems that people had. And he says you're to treat them all the same. Now, if you have one of these issues or something else that's not listed specifically but that is also ungodly, you need to take steps to change it, to get serious about it. You know, we only have so long, brethren, to have space to repent and overcome. Any one of us could die today. Any one of us could fall away. Any one of us could be expecting the kingdom of God to be 300 years away, and it might be here in a few years. We only have so much space, so much time to overcome. And Paul said in another place, I believe it was Paul, redeem the time. I think that's in 1 Thessalonians. Redeem the time. Well, we have a specific period of time right here that we're to be redeeming. We're to be using it, not letting it slip away from us. So I don't want you, and I don't want me, to take this time lightly. Let's be serious. Let's get as rid of as much sin as we can. Let's change our attitudes as much as we possibly can and get them in line with the attitudes of God and of Christ and let this mind be in you that was in Christ, not the carnality of the world, which he said these attitudes are, but the mind of Christ, which does not include any of these.